Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is Jeff Does Vegas. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 119 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get into this episode of the podcast, I do have a couple of thank yous that I need to pass along. First off, thanks to Anthony Smith from the Vegas true crime blog, Mayhem in the Desert, for hopping on the podcast for a special bonus episode to have a chat about the recent discoveries of human remains in nearby Lake Mead and their possible connection to mob history. Also, big thanks to Paul Salek, the founder and president of All In Aviation, a unique Las Vegas-based flight school that not only offers people a chance to learn how to be a pilot, but to do it while cruising over cool spots like Hoover Dam, the Grand Canyon, and the Vegas Strip. If you haven't listened to either of these episodes as of yet, hop into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out Sleeping with the Fishes, The Bodies of Lake Mead, and episode number 118, Flying High, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, here we go. On to the show. I have to admit that this episode of the podcast is, once again, a bit of a cheater. It's not really a new episode, but another repackaging of one of my favorite episodes of Sin City Stories, my Vegas history spinoff podcast. Why am I doing this? Well, July 16th, 2022 marks the 77th anniversary of the detonation of the very first atomic bomb. And although the actual test occurred in the desert just outside the town of Los Alamos, New Mexico, it led to one of the most interesting periods in Nevada's history and a very bizarre tourism industry for the city of Las Vegas. Just as the Cold War with Russia was beginning to heat up, the United States government selected a spot a little over 60 miles away from the glitz and glamour of the Vegas Strip where they could test atomic weapons. The explosions lit up the sky, and the mushroom clouds that came with the blasts could be seen for miles around, including from the rooftops of the hotels in downtown Las Vegas. So exactly how did the nuclear age find its way to Nevada, and what effect did it have on the city of Las Vegas and its culture? That's what you're going to find out as we dive deep into the history of Atomic Vegas. December 7th, 1941 a date which will live in infamy. The Japanese launch a surprise military strike on the United States naval base located at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Four battleships are sunk and numerous other vessels are damaged or destroyed. 188 aircraft are wiped out over 2,400 Americans are killed, and more than 1,100 others are wounded. In response to the attack, the United States officially declares war on Japan and would align themselves with Great Britain, France, and Russia to battle the Japanese and the Germans in the Pacific Theater. 
With that, America was now a part of World War II. This action also accelerated the planned development of the atomic bomb in the U.S. One year later, December 28, 1942, President Franklin Roosevelt authorizes the formation of the Manhattan Project to combine Allied research into a single entity with the goal of weaponizing nuclear energy. The Office of Scientific Research and Development had been working on the science behind an atomic bomb for several years before the Pearl Harbor attack. And with the president's approval, the Army Corps of Engineers had joined the team in October of 1941 and took the lead on the project, making work to develop the world's first nuclear weapon officially a military initiative. With the formation of the Manhattan Project, research facilities were set up in remote locations across the United States, including Washington, Tennessee, and New Mexico, which is where history would be made a little over two years later. Physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer, who would come to be known as the father of the atomic bomb, was already working on the concept of nuclear fission when he was named the director of the Los Alamos Laboratory in northern New Mexico. Los Alamos Laboratory, otherwise known as Project Y, was a secret site located in the desert about 100 miles away from the city of Albuquerque. The site was chosen at the recommendation of Oppenheimer due to its mild climate, its accessibility by air and rail, its low population density, and that it was far enough from the West Coast that it wouldn't be vulnerable to another attack by Japan. By 1944, 6,000 scientists and engineers from universities and research labs across the U.S. were hard at work on the development of the world's first ever nuclear weapon. And by the spring of 1945, the Manhattan Project looked to be on the brink of success. On April 12, 1945, U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt died suddenly. Vice President Harry Truman was sworn into office as the commander-in-chief and briefed immediately on the progress of the Manhattan Project. Just weeks later, Germany unconditionally surrendered their war effort, and although the Japanese were near defeat with supply lines cut off and hundreds of thousands dead, it was expected that their plan was to fight to the bitter end. A costly invasion of Japan seemed likely, but some U.S. policymakers felt that successful delivery of one or more atomic bombs might convince the Japanese that resistance was pointless. Flash forward to mid-July. The Trinity Test. Preparation for the test began on July 12th, with the plutonium core being taken to the test site with the non-nuclear components following closely behind. Engineers spent the day of July 13th assembling the gadget, as it would come to be called, and by 5 p.m. on July 15th, it had been hoisted to the top of the 100-foot-tall firing tower. And at precisely 5.30 a.m. on Monday, July 16th, 1945, the atomic age began. Man, nine. While staff and observers watched anxiously, the gadget exploded over the New Mexico desert, vaporizing the tower and turning the asphalt at the base of the tower into green sand. Releasing over 18 kilotons of power, the sky was lit up brighter than a thousand suns, with some observers suffering temporary blindness, even though they were watching through darkened glass. Seconds after the explosion came a huge blast, sending searing heat across the desert, which knocked several observers to the ground. The shock was so powerful that a steel container located a half mile away and weighing over 200 tons was knocked over. 
As the orange and yellow fireball stretched up and spread, a second column, narrower than the first, rose and flattened out into a mushroom shape, providing us with the visual image that we've come to associate with the atomic age. And even though the test occurred on a secret base away from the public, civilians took notice of it. The bright lights and huge explosion were seen and felt for several miles around, and there were even reports of windows shattering upwards of 125 miles away. An official cover story was released by the military claiming that an ammunition depot on an airbase had exploded in an accident. The Trinity test was deemed a success. Once word of the success made its way to U.S. President Harry Truman, he believed the threat of a nuclear attack could be used to force the Japanese to end their war effort. And on July 26, 1945, along with the Chinese president and the Prime Minister of Great Britain, he issued the Potsdam Declaration, which called for Japan to unconditionally surrender or, quote, face prompt and utter destruction. The Japanese rejected the offer on July 29, 1945. early morning hours of August 6, 1945, a B-29 bomber, the Enola Gay, took off from Tinian Island and headed northwest towards the Japanese islands, over 1,500 miles away. Its cargo? A 9,700-pound uranium bomb, nicknamed Little Boy. Its primary target? The city of Hiroshima, an important military and communications center with a population of nearly 300,000. As the Enola Gay neared its target, it climbed to an altitude of 31,000 feet and at approximately 8.15 a.m. local time, released its payload. seconds later, a huge explosion lit the morning sky as Little Boy detonated 1,900 feet above the city, directly over a parade field where members of the Japanese 2nd Army were doing their morning calisthenics. Little Boy killed 70,000 people instantly and injured another 70,000. The bomb caused total devastation for five square miles, with almost all of the buildings in the city either destroyed or damaged. Within hours, radio stations in America began reading a statement from President Truman, informing the public that the U.S. had just dropped a new type of bomb, a nuclear bomb, with more power than 15,000 tons of TNT on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. The statement also warned that if Japan still refused to surrender, the U.S. would attack additional targets with equally devastating results. Three days later, on August 9, 1945, the scene would repeat itself. Another B-29 bomber, called Boxcar, loaded with a 10,000-pound bomb nicknamed Fat Man, took off from Tinian and headed towards its primary target of Kokura Arsenal on the northern coast of Kyushu Island. Bad weather and defensive anti-aircraft fire above Kokura forced the pilot to switch to his secondary target, the city of Nagasaki, home to the Mitsubishi plant that had manufactured the torpedoes used in the attack on Pearl Harbor. At an altitude of 29,000 feet, at 11.01 a.m. local time, Boxcar dropped its payload.
43 seconds later, Fat Man exploded 1,650 feet above Nagasaki with the force of 21,000 tons of TNT. Fat Man killed 40,000 people and injured 60,000 more, destroying three square miles of the city. Five days later, on August 14, 1945, Japan officially surrendered, ending the war that had begun for the United States with the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. But I know what you're probably asking right now. What the hell does any of this have to do with Las Vegas? Don't worry, I'm getting to that. may have been over, but the United States' interest in nuclear weapons was only just beginning. However, the balance of power was shifting. The Manhattan Project had been under military control, but following the war, the decision was made to shift oversight to a civilian entity, and the Atomic Energy Commission, or AEC, was created. The Manhattan Project was disbanded, and many of the scientists who worked on the initial atomic bomb projects, as well as the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, returned to their positions at universities and other research facilities. Another major post-war debate was whether or not a permanent continental atomic testing site should be established somewhere in the United States. Some policymakers, including General Dwight D. Eisenhower and U.S. President Harry Truman, had concerns about the idea for several reasons, including the public's fear of radioactive fallout and the safety of nuclear weapons. The United States' first post-war tests were conducted in the Pacific Proving Grounds near the Marshall Islands, and they revealed the difficulties in testing such a great distance from the mainland. The issues were both technical and logistical, affecting supply lines and movement of personnel. As such, both scientists and administrators involved in the program began to see the benefit of a more accessible mainland proving ground. In 1948, a study codenamed Project Nutmeg explored the pros and cons of several potential test sites around the United States. After the preliminary analysis and reports were released, concerns persisted about safety and security. So the decision was made to continue testing in the Pacific and that the question of a mainland site would only be revisited in the event of a national emergency. That so-called national emergency would come on August 29, 1949, when the Soviet Union conducted their first successful nuclear test, bringing the potential for nuclear war much closer to reality and the realization that the United States could be a target for nuclear weapons. Then, a little less than a year later, in June 1950, the Korean War began, which caused grave concern among U.S. officials about the safety and security of continuing large-scale nuclear testing programs in the Pacific Proving Ground. Finding a new continental site for testing nuclear weapons immediately became a top priority. The AEC and the Joint Army-Navy Armed Forces Special Weapons Project, or AFSWAP, began to examine possible locations. Initially, five spots were considered, including Alamogordo and White Sands, New Mexico, which was the original Trinity test site, Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, the Las Vegas Tonopah Bombing and Gunnery Range north of Las Vegas, Central Nevada near the town of Eureka, and the Dugway Proving Ground and Wendover Bombing Range in Utah. The choice was then narrowed further, down to three candidates, Dugway, Las Vegas, and Alamogordo. 
fallout patterns, prevailing winds, downwind populations, security, and public awareness and relations were all factors taken into consideration for the final decision. Dugway in Utah was judged to be too close to the population centers within a 125-mile radius. Alamogordo in New Mexico also had the same issue with the city of El Paso, Texas, just outside that radius. An engineering firm conducted surveys of the Las Vegas site, examining possible north and south areas that could be used for testing. They determined that the south site, which included several dry lake beds, was preferable. So, December 18, 1950, President Truman approved the establishment of a nuclear test proving ground at the south site of the Las Vegas bombing and gunnery range. On January 11, 1951, the Atomic Energy Commission officially announced what had, up until then, been top-secret information. The establishment of a test site where nuclear explosions would be taking place. Many local officials, including those of neighboring states, were completely unaware of the development of the highly classified weapons program and needed to be briefed. Even though a continental site had been decided on, there were still plans for a series of tests in the Pacific in the spring of 1951, called Greenhouse. One of these tests was to be the world's first thermonuclear test explosion. However, the AEC wanted to use the Nevada Proving Ground to conduct tests and experiments related to Greenhouse. Originally called FAUST, which stood for First Airdrop United States Test, the official codename would be Ranger. Given the tight timeline for getting the Ranger tests done ahead of Greenhouse, there was little time to develop the Nevada test site. Instead of detonating the bombs from specially built towers, as had been done with the Trinity test, the weapons would be dropped from B-50D bombers flying from Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico. On January 27, 1951, the Nevada test site officially became operational. In the early morning hours, a B-50D bomber flew over Frenchman Flat, a dry lake bed covering 123 square miles of the Nevada test site, at an altitude of almost 20,000 feet, and released its payload, known as Shot Able. The bomb detonated a little over 1,000 feet above ground with a one kiloton force, officially sending Nevada into the atomic age. That first blast, although small by comparison to previous nuclear tests elsewhere, was huge news for Las Vegas. One local newspaper, the Las Vegas Review-Journal, broke out the two-inch-tall text for the headline, Vegans Atomized, with the subheading, Thousand C Feel Effects of Detonation. According to the article, in the city of Las Vegas, the flash was followed by a mild earth tremor and a blast of air, like a windstorm, that was felt in an irregular pattern throughout the city. That being said, most slept through the early morning test, and although Las Vegas police reported receiving several calls for about a half hour following the blast, there was no real panic or concern. As an example of the gambling community's relaxed attitude, the Review-Journal cited a craps player at the Golden Nugget who, upon feeling the shock from the test, paused his play, looked around, calmly said, Huh, must be an atomic bomb. Then turned back to the table and continued with his game. As time went on, however, the blasts got bigger. Shot Baker, the second test at the site, just 24 hours later, was approximately eight times more powerful than Abel and left a much bigger impression on the citizens of Las Vegas, with people being shaken out of bed by the early morning blast. 
Shots Easy and Baker 2 followed on February 1st and 2nd respectively with the grand finale of Operation Ranger Shot Fox happening on February 6, 1951. Fox would be, by far, the largest shot in the Ranger test series, anticipated to be up to 35 kilotons. With a blast of this size, there was some concern among officials. Baker II, which had been around 8 kilotons, had produced some minor damage in Las Vegas. So, what would be the consequences of a blast four times as large? Deciding that the Baker II effects were, quote, unexplained and freakish blast effects, Fox was given the green light. But a public notice was issued urging people to stay away from windows at the time of the blast, just in case. In the early morning hours of February 6, a B-50D bomber cruising at an altitude of 29,500 feet dropped its payload above Frenchman Flat and the device detonated at a height of 1,435 feet above the target. Although Fox ended up producing a smaller-than-anticipated blast of only 22 kilotons, the test was still spectacular, with the mushroom cloud peaking at a height of over 43,000 feet. Las Vegas escaped relatively unscathed. The blast wave hit the city about six minutes after the actual detonation and splintered large windows at two car dealerships, but otherwise did little more than shake buildings and frighten residents. Gamblers reportedly ducked under tables at one casino, and some witnesses claimed to have been temporarily blinded by the flash. And with that, the first operation at the Nevada test site came to a close. At noon on February 6, AEC manager Carol Tyler announced that Ranger was complete, and he thanked the people of Nevada for their contributions to the program. At the time, the future of the Nevada test site was unclear. However, following the success of the Ranger program, the Atomic Energy Commission swiftly made moves to make the site a permanent testing ground for nuclear weapons. Over the course of the next 40 years, there'd be over 900 tests conducted at the site, both atmospheric and underground, including destruction and survivability testing, civil defense guidelines development, and feasibility testing for the use of nuclear weapons for peaceful means, such as creating bays or digging canals. And although the Nevada test site had several effects on the city of Las Vegas, including economic and population growth, there was one type of boom that wasn't planned for. When it was first announced that nuclear testing would be occurring in such close proximity to the city of Las Vegas, several concerns were raised, not the least of which was the worry that the fear of atomic explosions would chase away the tourists. Of course, Vegas being Vegas, the exact opposite happened. In fact, immediately after the first bomb was detonated, the Las Vegas Chamber of Commerce issued a stream of press releases describing the new testing grounds as one of the many unique attractions Las Vegas had to offer. The atomic testing that occurred in the Ranger tests accounted for one of the biggest influxes of tourists the city had ever seen. Following the Baker shot, the second test conducted, Las Vegas residents were setting their alarms so they could be out watching the 5.45 a.m. detonations and cars packed with spectators would begin lining the roads around the test site at the best vantage points. The atomic tourism industry was born. It became even bigger when, a little over a year later, on April 22, 1952, 200 reporters and cameramen from across the country 
gathered on a mound of volcanic rock at the edge of Yucca Lake that would later become known as News Knob. They were there at the invite of the government for the first time ever to record and broadcast the test of a 31 kiloton nuclear bomb dubbed the Big Shot. From just 10 miles away, the American public were given the opportunity to witness, from the safety of their living rooms, the raw power of a nuclear explosion. After the televised test, atomic culture swept the nation, with Las Vegas at the center of it all. The Las Vegas Chamber of Commerce printed up calendars advertising detonation times and testing dates months in advance so people could plan vacations. Tourism officials posted guides with the best places to watch the explosions. Hotels with north-facing windows experienced an increase in bookings by people wanting to witness the blasts from their rooms. Downtown casinos began hosting dawn bomb parties on their rooftops, serving up cocktails while guests danced and watched mushroom clouds rise above the horizon. Tour companies sold packages called Up and Adam, where guests would be driven out to a safe distance from ground zero to observe the tests. Tourists would pack atomic lunches and would drive out to have picnics as close to the blast site as the government restrictions would allow. Mushroom clouds, the iconic symbol of the nuclear tests, began showing up everywhere, including billboards, merchandise, hairstyles, and costumes. A specialty drink, the Atomic Cocktail, a concoction of vodka, brandy, cognac, and champagne over ice began showing up in casino and hotel bars. Legendary casino owner Benny Binion was once quoted as saying, The best thing to happen to Vegas was the atomic bomb. The atomic craze even led to one of the most bizarre combinations of all time that could really only ever happen in Las Vegas. Nuclear bombs and showgirls. On May 9, 1952, Las Vegas dancer Candace King became the first ever atomic pinup girl as her photo appeared in the Dixon, Illinois Evening Telegraph and the Statesville, North Carolina Daily Record. The caption under the photo read, Radiating loveliness instead of deadly atomic particles. Candace King, actress appearing at Last Frontier Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada, dazzled U.S. Marines who participated in recent atomic maneuvers at Yucca Flats. They bestowed upon her the title of Miss Atomic Blast, finding her as awe-inspiring in another way as was the Big Bang. In the spring of 1953, during the Upshot Knothole series of tests, the city of North Las Vegas held its annual beauty contest, with Paula Harris being selected as Miss North Las Vegas. During a movie title theme parade, Ms. Harris rode on the North Las Vegas Chamber of Commerce float, which was modeled after the film The Atomic City. The sign on the side of the float proclaimed North Las Vegas as, quote, new and modern as the A-bomb, and Paula was nicknamed Miss A-bomb. In early 1955, the Nevada test site was the home of Operation Teapot, which was used to evaluate the effects of a nuclear attack on civilian communities by measuring how well houses, household items, and clothing would stand up to a blast. The program, known as Operation Q, was plagued by delays, and personnel began calling it Operation Miss Q. During one such delay, staff from the program headed to Vegas, where six U.S. Army members crowned an unidentified COPA girl at the Sands Hotel, Miss Q. And on May 1st, 1955, the Sands released a photo of the showgirl wearing her crown, a mushroom cloud, of course. And on May 24th, 1957, the Las Vegas News Bureau released a photo of the last and 
and arguably the most famous Miss Atomic Bomb of all time, Sans Copa Girl Lee A. Merlin. The photo, taken by Las Vegas Sun photographer Don English, featured Ms. Merlin standing in the desert wearing a cotton mushroom cloud on the front of her swimsuit. The picture was distributed nationally, and to this day, the photo continues to appear all over the world, in publications and on merchandise. But, as the saying goes, all good things must come to an end. By the time the last atmospheric tests were happening at the Nevada test site, nuclear testing was no longer the great tourist attraction that it once was testing had become routine, and people were no longer excited by it. Then, on August 5, 1963, the United States and the Soviet Union signed the Limited Test Ban Treaty, which prohibited nuclear tests in the atmosphere, underwater, or in space, literally driving nuclear testing underground and putting the final nail in the coffin for the atomic tourism industry. In some ways, the creation of the Nevada test site was good for the region. The population of the Las Vegas area grew by over 160%. Visitation to the city saw a massive increase thanks to the folks who came to town to see the detonations. Thousands of jobs were created in the area, and more than $176 million in federal funds were brought to the region, two-thirds of which went directly back into the Las Vegas economy. But what was the true cost of these tests? From the outset of the selection and development of the test site, concerns had been raised by officials regarding the dangers of detonating nuclear weapons within such close proximity to a large population center such as Las Vegas. However, when testing began, the U.S. government was confident that their meteorologists could predict the weather and wind patterns to help prevent the spread of radiation. In 1955, the Atomic Energy Commission issued brochures to residents of the area claiming that the path of the fallout did not constitute a serious hazard to any living thing outside the test site and that the radiation levels they'd experienced were only slightly more than normal radiation which they'd experienced day in and day out wherever they lived. But declassified documents have revealed that fallout from the test drifted across several parts of the United States. One of the hardest hit areas was the town of St. George, Utah, located downwind from the Nevada test site. The years following the May 1953 Harry shot, or what would later be dubbed Dirty Harry due to the large amount of nuclear fallout generated, saw the small town see reportedly higher cancer rates among its citizens and a large loss of farmers' livestock due to radiation poisoning. The most famous downwinder case to come out of the Nevada site involved the film The Conqueror, which was shot in the desert just outside St. George in 1956. Several notable Hollywood actors were part of the production, including John Wayne, Agnes Moorhead, and Susan Hayward. But overshadowing the star-powered cast was the revelation that many of those involved in the production developed cancer in the years following. By 1980, 91 of the 220 cast and crew had developed some form of cancer, and of these, 46 had died. Most notably, in 1979, John Wayne had passed away from stomach cancer at the age of 72, and 15 years previously, he'd had a bout with lung cancer, which he'd beaten. 
Wayne had also been visited by multiple family members while working on the set of The Conqueror, several of whom had also developed cancer or tumors. Government denials about cancer-causing fallout began to unravel in the late 1970s and early 1980s, when lawsuits filed against the government uncovered internal AEC reports from the time of the tests that showed scientists and bureaucrats downplayed and distorted evidence. Several reports were unearthed, showing massive increases in leukemia rates among children, direct links between the deaths of thousands of sheep and nuclear tests, and the argument that postponing testing due to health concerns would slow arms development. On October 5, 1990, following almost 20 years of attempting to enact legislation, the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act was passed by the United States Congress and signed into law by U.S. President George H.W. Bush. The RECA provided $50,000 in compensation for individuals who were residing or working downwind from the Nevada test site. In addition to the issues faced by the so-called downwinders, the testing had a massive environmental impact on the site itself. Following the implementation of the Limited Test Ban Treaty and the movement to underground testing only, each of the below-ground explosions, some as deep as 5,000 feet, vaporized a large chamber, leaving a cavity filled with radioactive rubble. When underground explosions ended in 1992, the Department of Energy declared the site to be one of the most radioactively contaminated locations in the United States. In some of the most seriously affected zones, the concentration of radioactivity in groundwater was 50,000 times higher than the federally accepted standard. And although radioactivity levels in water do decline over time, danger could exist for workers and future settlers for tens of thousands of years. The Nevada test site was also a very contentious spot for anti-nuclear protesters. From 1986 to 1994, 536 demonstrations were held on the site involving over 37,000 protesters with over 15,000 people arrested. In September 1992, the U.S. Congress passed legislation known as the Hatfield-Exxon Amendment for a nine-month moratorium on nuclear testing. As such, the final nuclear test to happen at the Nevada testing site occurred on September 18th and September 23rd of that year. On October 2nd, 1992, U.S. President George H.W. Bush signed the moratorium into law. Four years later, on September 24th, 1996, U.S. President Bill Clinton signed the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, officially prohibiting nuclear weapons and test detonations. And although the U.S. Congress has never ratified the treaty, the United States has maintained its moratorium on nuclear testing. Flash forward to today. In spite of the lack of nuclear detonations, the Nevada testing site is anything but deserted. In 2010, the site was renamed the Nevada National Security Site, or NNSS. It's currently used for national nuclear security defense programs, industry research and development, open-air experiments by both federal agencies and private industries, as well as Department of Homeland Security nuclear and radiological emergency response testing and training. The NNSS also offers monthly tours of the testing site, including stops at the town of Mercury, the gateway to the Nevada testing site, Frenchman Flat, where the first test on the site was conducted, the Sedan Crater, a 320-foot-deep, 1,280-foot diameter crater which was formed by one of the largest underground tests, and the Apple II houses, which were constructed to test the effects of a nuclear explosion 
in a city or town. Space on the tours is extremely limited and is usually booked upwards of 12 months in advance. Security on the tours is also extremely tight, as guests are prohibited from bringing cameras, cell phones, or binoculars. For many in the United States, the Nevada test site is viewed as a place of incredibly important historical significance, especially when it comes to national security. After all, this was the battleground on which the Cold War was fought and won. The devices tested at the Nevada test site forever changed humanity and civilization, and the legacy of the site will always remain controversial. I hope you've enjoyed this trip back in time, exploring one of the most interesting periods in Las Vegas history. If you want to learn more about Nevada's atomic history, check out the show notes for links to Volume 5 of Sin City Stories at SinCityStoriesPod.com, where you'll find articles, photos, videos, and much more. Also, if you're visiting Vegas anytime soon, be sure to stop by the National Atomic Testing Museum, just east of the Strip on Flamingo Road. There, you'll learn about the history of atomic testing and nuclear weapons, not only in Nevada, but around the world, as well as see exhibits and artifacts related to this important time in our history. Of course, you can find all these links in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com. And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcast so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production. Walker New Media.